Well, this morning, our text is 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Just one verse um, that we'll start with. And I'm, to, I'm going to remind you of things you already know. I'm going to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, you already know uh, these things I'm going to say this morning. And, but um, Paul, in his writing, would say, uh, to, to try to remind them, remind them. And so I'm going to remind you this morning why we celebrate Christmas, and I know you know, and so uh, nothing new here this morning, but just just a reminder. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, the, the context is Paul is speaking uh, to the Corinthian church about raising an offering for the saints who are going through a famine. So the context is giving and uh, so he's giving the reasons they should give, and he ends with this statement. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. <clears throat> A little bit underhanded of Paul. Paul was saying, you chinchy people, cough it up. Uh, remember what Christ did for you. <laughs> so that's a little pressure, isn't it? Uh, preachers often have a tendency to put guilt trips on people to, to give and talk about the starving children, and there are starving children, and I don't mean to make fun, and so, but, but, and, and we should be concerned, and we should be involved in manna and things like that, but, but you understand, the reason we give is because Christ gave to us. God gave to us Jesus Christ, and it should change our heart and make us, make us want to give. Um, you drive by the mall, it's crowded, people are looking for the perfect gift for someone. There is, there is no perfect gift except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so when we think about him this morning, I, I want you to think only God could conceive of sending his son to be the savior of the people he created. God is sovereign, he is omniscient, he knows everything. He knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew that I'd be born a sinner, that you'd be born a sinner. And he's saying, well, why, why did he do that? Why did he, why did he plan that? And he didn't plan, he didn't make Adam sin. Again, there's the, there's the contrast between free will and the sovereignty of God. He knew Adam was going to sin, and he provided a Savior. I'm going to give you my opinion in quotes, my opinion, is that we would never love God. We would have loved God. The angels loved God. They were created by God. They loved God. Uh, the, the created order is obedient to God. We would have been obedient to God uh, all of our lives as long as we'd lived, and if we'd lived eternally, we would have been obedient to God, but we would never known Him in His redemptive love. We would have never understood that He loved us in spite of our sin that the depth of his love, now that we are sinners and that we would repent because of his love for us, the depth of his love is revealed to be greater to us than it ever would have been had there been no sin in, in our world. And so <clears throat> um, that's just, that's my uh, opinion. That's, that's how I, I look at it. So I want you to think about it. Jesus Christ was the gift anticipated. You go in the beginning of the Bible, and uh, you, the Lord, when Adam and Eve sinned, well, the Lord spoke about, God, the Lord God spoke about Christ coming when he said that 
they, uh, that Satan would bruise the heel of the woman, but uh, that the, the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would bruise his head. And the, and the only person that's really bruised the head of Satan is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, Satan's power was corrupted and his head was bruised in, in that sense. And so it was an anticipation of him coming. And Abraham takes Isaac uh, up on the top of the mountain to offer him as sacrifice and obedience to God. And on their way up, Isaac says to his dad, probably a teenager, says to his dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, where is the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide himself an offering. You can interpret that two ways. God will provide the ram that we're going to catch, uh, that's going to be, which Abraham didn't know that yet, but there's a ram caught in the thicket, and God's going to provide that offering, or God's going to provide himself as an offering. I think both are true because in the future, God did provide himself. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, manifest in the flesh, who came to, to be an offering. When you come to, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> when you come to Isaiah, I, Isaiah seven fourteen, a virgin shall be born, um, uh, God incarnate, but call his name Emmanuel, God incarnate in the flesh. Emmanuel means God with us. Uh, Isaiah 53, he will suffer uh, in our place. I'm going to read you a couple of verses. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's verse 4 and 5. Verse 19 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his offering a soul for, when you make his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 9 says that Jesus will be a ruler on the throne of David. Didn't name Jesus, but it talked about this son who's going to be born will be a ruler on the throne of David, which by the way hasn't happened yet. And so that's in the future. That's going to be the millennial kingdom when, when that takes place. When you, come to, when you come to Micah, Micah talked about him being born in Bethlehem. So all the, all the prophets refer to him, the Psalms refer to him, Proverbs refer to him. It, it's just the, the, uh, through Deuteronomy you find him. He was the rock that followed the nation. We've studied that in the last couple of months. So Jesus Christ is the appropriate gift. He's an anticipated gift. And then he's, he came at the appropriate time. You've heard me use this uh, before, but I, I, I love Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. In the fullness of time. It meant that when God was perfectly ready. You know, we think about if, if, if Christ had come, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, if Christ had come at that point in time, who else, uh, or, or let's, let's just say if you had come during Abraham's time, uh, after Adam and Eve's time, there weren't that many people in the world, but at Abraham's time, there may have been hundreds of thousands of people, and who would have, who would have heard? If they scattered out, they would have never heard. If he had come, you know, a thousand years before he came, uh, 2,000 years ago, who would have heard? And so I want to, I want to, I want you to think about what takes place 
You remember when you, when you go to Daniel's prophecy, and, and Daniel tells the king about this image that he saw, and he says there are going to be these successive kingdoms, O king, and you're the first, you're the head of God. So he's talking to the Babylonian king, and he's saying that following you, there's going to be these successive kingdoms. There's going to be the Greek kingdom and the Roman kingdom, and then there's going to be uh, uh, the Roman kingdom revived, and then there's going to be a kingdom made without hands, and it's going to come and this turn into a mountain. It's going to be a rock that smites this image, all this image of the earthly kingdoms, and this rock's going to fill the earth. It's going to be a mountain that fills the earth. That's the kingdom of Christ that's coming one day. So Daniel tells us about that. And then in chapter 9, Daniel gives a time frame. Daniel's praying, and the, God sends the angel to, to give him information, and he gives him a time frame. And he says to him, so Daniel's now living in the time of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is an extension of the Babylonian Empire. So he's living in the time of the Persian Empire. And this angel tells him that there's going to be 70 weeks of years. And then that until the accumulation of time, until the fulfillment of time. And he said that what's happening is that in 69 weeks of years... Messiah will be cut off. And so this is going to start. He told Daniel, this is going to start from time the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Right, Cyrus did that, and it's in history. It's in secular history. He gave a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. If you know Ezra, if you know Nehemiah, the, the children of Israel go back. Some of them, maybe 50,000, they go back, and they start rebuilding Jerusalem. And then... So what's happening is that that started the clock. And 483 years later, 69 weeks of years, seven years to a week, 483 years later, in history, Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem and offered himself as a sacrifice. Messiah was cut off, and then Daniel says, but not for himself. So he came right on time. He came at the appropriate time. Now, why was this right on time? And you, you've, you've probably heard me say this, these things before as well. God gave the Jewish people, through Moses, a written testament of himself. So the, 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 Deuteron- the, the, books, the books of the, uh, the first five books give a history of God and him dealing with people. But who's going to know that? Who, probably written in Hebrew. So who's going to know that? Who's going to know about that? There's these little bitty people, and you look at the map, there's little bitty land, and even if they came out of Egypt, there's still just this little bitty group of people, and they're inclusive, and God chose them to tell the world about him. But they're not doing it. They're sinners just like we are. So they're more concerned about their, their life and what's under the Christmas tree than what the Christmas tree really means. So, so they're just like we are, and they're not going to the people. In fact, they looked at the people around them, and they said, they're not worthy of our care. We don't care about them. And uh, that's pretty evident. And so, so what God did is that in preparation for the coming of Christ, he, he brought the Babylonians, and he called them his instrument. And he brings them and captures the people of Israel, first the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, the Assyrians, which again is part of the Babylonian empire, uh, 
you know, morphed into the Babylonian Empire. They captured the northern kingdom. The Babylonians kept, captured Judah, the southern kingdom. And they, and they take them into captivity. And there are probably people who, who, who fled that invasion as well. And so now they're scattered. And in that captivity, they developed a synagogue system. And a synagogue system is where there are 10 adult male Jews. They would meet together for prayer. And if they had scripture, they'd read Old Testament scripture. They couldn't worship at the temple. They couldn't offer sacrifices. But now, so now they're scattered through the world. <clears throat> so, now, so now they're scattered through what we'd call the Middle East and into Egypt. And they're, they're, so they're, now they're scattered. And so they have these synagogue systems. And then what happens is that God had told Daniel that after the Babylonian kingdom would be a Greek kingdom and uh, that Greece would rise up. Alexander the Great conquers that known world. Really interesting when you read in history how it was just a miracle that he was able to do that with so few troops. So he conquers the known world. And then um, what happens, they establish a more or less a universal language. If you travel out of the United States today and you travel somewhere where they speak a different language, you'll find that most people in in commercial settings, the shops you go in, the places you go, they speak English. And they speak English because of the power of the dollar. Well, that's what happened in Greek. So so Greek becomes a scholarly language and it becomes a, uh, a trade language in a sense. And so the world, it, regardless of where they lived, they, they understood Greek. Greek. I'm not saying that every person, I'm not saying that every farmer or, or every shopkeeper, but I'm saying that the, the scholars, the, the learned people, the people who can read and speak, they learn Greek. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in 70 AD before Christ came down into Alexandria, Egypt. So it's translated into into the Greek language. And so now it's being read by people who speak Greek, even though they're not Jewish anymore. And then God sends the Romans. And what the Romans did is brought the Pax Romania, which means that there's, there's peace and availability to travel. And they even built roads to travel on throughout most of Europe. And so now the Jewish people and the people who heard the gospel, have the ability to travel. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, when, when you come to just after the time of Christ's death, then what you find there is that the typical pattern is that during the great festivals, especially at Passover and the Feast of, of, of Trumpet, that the people would, people would come from the, around the world and they'd come to Jerusalem. And they'd come to worship. The Jewish people and those who were converted would come, and, and so now, it, I think there's 17 or 18 nationalities of Jews named in Acts chapter 2. So they've come from around the world, and they're at Jerusalem, and when Jesus comes, and he's been going in and out of the temple now for a week, and there's an uproar. You remember, uh, uh, they told Pilate that the whole, he, he's upset the whole world. And so there's an uproar, and everybody knows about this Jesus of Nazareth who has this claim to be uh, the Messiah, or at least a prophet, they think. And then he's crucified, 
outside the city gate where people come and go, wherever they're staying, when they're going to come in and they're going to worship at the temple, they're going to pass right by, and he's crucified, and then they hear the resurrection. And, and on, on the day of Pentecost, there are 3,000 people who are saved on that very day initially, and they're people from these 17 or other countries, and they're Jewish people or Jewish believers, believing in Judaism, and they go back to their synagogues and they tell what they've heard. So the timing is perfect. God prepared the world. So when Christ came to die, the world would hear about it. And so it's really, really interesting to me. God is a God of order. He's a God of patience. He's a, he's a God of timing. Uh, nothing escapes his detail. He, he, he just, God knows exactly what he's doing. He's not in a hurry. Uh, sometimes we're in a hurry, we're impatient. We realize we have but a short time to live and we want it all right now. God's not like that. God, God organized, he's patient, he does these things. You read in Luke chapter 2, the uh, <clears throat> Christ is born, the angel goes to the shepherds and he says in Luke chapter 2, unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Unto you, this day, this day, this very day. Isn't that interesting? You remember when we were studying Exodus and we, we, we read that when uh, the children of Israel came out, they came out on the very day that God had prophesied to Abraham 400 years before how long they'd be in Egypt. They came out the very day. So, so Christ came. Was he born on December 25th? Probably not. I mean, we don't even know. Nobody knows exactly what day he was born. Doesn't mean we can't celebrate December 25th. So, but, but what it does mean is that God knew exactly what he was doing, and Christ came exactly at the right time that the most people and the rest of history would hear about him and have opportunity to believe. Now, it hasn't happened. You know why? Because we're sinners like the Jewish people is that we are, we don't, we're not as concerned as we should be about taking that gospel to the world. We're more concerned with our own lives to some degree. Now, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you. I'm talking about myself as well. But So, it, so we're, we're just like the Jewish people. I think we've seen that as we've studied their exodus coming out, coming out of Egypt, that we're just like them and we fall in the same traps and we have the same nature and we have to battle this nature. The, the difference between us and they is that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and we do care and it does change us and we do ha- have a hope. So Christ came in the fullness of time. The fullness of time. I've been reading, I've been reading about uh, the battles between the Persians and the Greeks and it's just astounding that uh, the Greeks could win against such an overwhelming force. The Persians put forth an army that was unparalleled in history, uh, maybe an army of over a million men, and, uh, and just un- unparalleled in history. But our gifts wear out, or we get tired of them, or they go out of style. But Jesus Christ is the eternal king. I'm, I'm missing one of the headings. Okay, Jesus Christ... Not only come to the appropriate time, but he is the everlasting gift. He never wears out. He's the everlasting gift. You know, we have a tendency to think of Jesus in the past, and we, if we stop to think, we think about him coming in the future, 
uh, and we anticipate that to some degree, but he is the eternal great. Today is not a day that God's trying to make up for the unfortunate death of Jesus and getting the world to turn and believe. That's not happening, and that's not biblical. Uh, There's not a yin-yang about Satan and Jesus and them being in a battle. That's that's not biblical either. Satan is real, and Satan is uh, was the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air, but his power has been defeated by the cross for anyone who will come by faith to believe in Jesus. But what happens is that God is orchestrating today, just like he did then and just like he's going to do when he comes again. Jesus Christ is eternally the ruler. Jesus Christ is ruling in our world today. But he's ruling in in grace. He's allowing the world time. Do you remember back to Abraham again, when God prophesied to Abraham that the that the, his offspring would be in Egypt for 400 years. Here's what he told, it's what he, what he told Abraham, is that you're going you're gonna to have this land where the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jezebites and all these people live. You're going to have this land, but their iniquity is not yet full. Remember that? Their iniquity is not yet full. So God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to give these people 400 years to repent. Their iniquity is not to the place that I'm going to bring judgment upon them yet, but it's coming. And he gave them 400 years. Okay, that's what's happening today. Jesus Christ came, and he's the Savior, and he's the judge, but the judgment hasn't fallen because of God's grace. There's mercy in his grace, and he's looking at our world in mercy, waiting until... People have an opportunity to be saved. People have an opportunity to acknowledge him, repent. One day when history is over and God rules in eternity, what we call eternity, when God rules, no one who's in hell will ever be able to say that there wasn't an opportunity to trust in Christ. You say, well, what about those people who live in third world or fourth world countries and they've never really had opportunity to hear the gospel? Romans chapter 1 that everyone intuitively, instinctively know there is a God, and when they know him, they worship him not as God, but they worship themselves. So every person ever created knows there is a God who created them. They know they're accountable to him, and they have a responsibility to respond to that. So I, I don't have a problem with those people who we believe have never heard or never acknowledged. I think it's sad. I think we need to rectify that as best we can. And, but at the same time, uh, God, is, God is just in what he does. I had a conversation with a lady this week who uh, was telling me that, what, <laughs> telling me that, you know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is just different because he is cruel in the Old Testament. And so we... I discussed with her a little bit of this. I said, no, he wasn't cruel. I mean, he, he allowed the Jewish people to, to destroy those people, but he gave them 400 years to repent. They were idolatrous. They were idol worshipers. They had rejected him. They had turned completely away from him. When, when you think about what we read in Scripture, 
way before Abraham. Okay, there's roughly 2,000 years from the creation of Adam until Abraham, the creation of the Jewish nation. Roughly 2,000 years of the Jewish nation until Christ came, and now we've roughly had 2,000 years of the Christian era. Okay, in that previous time before the development of the Jewish nation, you're going to find Job, and you read the book of Job, and you find that Job worshipped. And Job's friends, his three friends, four friends, they all worshipped. They knew there was a God. They knew to worship. Cain and Abel knew to worship. Adam and Eve knew to worship. Now, how did they know? How did those people in that time know to worship? God revealed himself to them. Now, we don't know exactly how because we don't have a written record of it except for Job. And, and so we know that they worship. They, they, they acknowledge there was a one true God. So, <clears throat> so the nations prior knew there was a God and they knew they should worship him and give, uh, give a, a, a worship to him. And that whether they did or not is up to them. They're accountable for their, their own actions. So God has always reigned and he's always had a plan and it is still at work today. I hope when you look at our world today, and I don't know about you, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have reason to be frustrated. You have reason to be frustrated about what the next generation is going to be like and what the last generation was like and what's happening today with crime, what's happening with immigration, what's happening with economy. You know, and we forget, we have a tendency to watch the news and there's 24-hour cycles and, you know, 18, 20 different places to get it. And it's a little, it's a little frustrating if you take too much of that in. You begin to think, if, if we don't fix things, we're doomed. You ever think that? Give me a nod. You ever think, if we don't fix things, we're doomed. God's not concerned one bit, okay? I want you to remember that. God's not concerned. That's what I preach to myself. Lord, you know exactly what's happening in our world. I'm to be concerned. You want me to be. You want me to pray. But I'm not going to be worried. I'm not going to be worried. I'm not going to be frustrated. I'm not going to be, uh, it's not going to dominate my life. Why? Because I believe in God's rule. He's ruling. And sometimes he gives us leadership that we deserve. Okay? So sometimes if... if, we we have what we deserve. He's saying, this is what you wanted, this is what you voted for, this is what you get, and this is the direction that, that you're going. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega. See, I'm reminding you, you know that. It's the Alpha and Omega. What does that mean? He, Hebrews, chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 said basically that he created all things and he sustains all things. That's what those three verses say. He is the creator and the sustainer. He's sustaining our world today. He's sustaining everything in our world today. And, and, and he knows exactly what's happening in every corner of the world, in every person's heart. He, he, he is a sustaining that. I was just thinking about, if, if he counts the hairs on our head, does he count the ones that come out of our ears? Okay. (laughs) 
I've never figured that out. You know, when it quits growing on your head, it starts coming out your ears. So there must be a lot of pressure in there somewhere. Okay, what time we have? The indescribable gift will become visible one day. We will never fully understand what Jesus Christ means to our world. We'll never understand fully what he means to our world. We will never understand fully what he means to us. Maybe we'll have, we'll have a better understanding when we have a new nature, when, when our nature is not tainted by sin. Today I'm a believer, you're a believer, we're here this morning, we want to worship, but our nature is tainted by sin. Our worship is tainted by our own self-person. And one day that's going to be taken away and we'll understand more. But because he's God, he's infinite and we'll never fully understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and salvation and redemption and propitiation. That the wrath of God is covered with the blood of Christ and God's satisfied with that. Now, we understand that to a degree, but we'll never understand it Fully, and here's why I, I think the reason is because God is infinite, so when I sin, it's an infinite sin against an infinite God, and yet it's propitiated by the blood of Christ, it's covered by the blood of Christ. I'll never understand the depth of that, okay? I understand it on the surface, I believe it, the Bible teaches it, I accept it, I'm happy about it. It gives me comfort, but I'll never understand the depth of my sin against Christ and against the depth of his anguish and agony and his being rejected by the Father. I can understand the physical death on the cross. I've suffered physical pain. You've suffered physical pain. We understand physical pain. I understand being mocked. I understand being rejected. I understand to some degree, all of those things. I do not understand the very Son of God being rejected by the Father. God in flesh being rejected by God the Father. I don't understand that. I don't know what that means exactly. I I know it happened. The Bible teaches that. I don't know the expanse of that. You understand what I'm saying this morning? So what do we do? Do we we say, well, since I don't understand it, I don't believe it? No, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. But you did that. You did it for us. We don't even understand it, but you did it for us. And you cared about us. Well, one day he's going to become visible. We're going to see Jesus Christ one day. Two, Two things might happen. We might die or the rapture might take place. If we die, Paul says, if we die before the rapture, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The psalmist said uh, the death of one of God's saints is uh, is what? Pleasant in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, if if I die before Christ comes, I'm going to see him immediately. I'm going to be in his presence. I'm going to see him immediately. Now, if he comes... We're going to see him visibly with our eyes before we die, if, if he comes. So, and um, 
We're going to be caught up together. You remember that scripture to beat the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're going to meet him in the air. What are we going to see? Well, we get a little hint. Revelation chapter 1. I think these will scriptures will be up there. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. And I'm just going to read them. Revelation 1, 12. Then I turned to see a voice that spoke with me. This is John speaking on the Isle of Patmos. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like the like fine brass as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword... And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I think, now I'm giving my opinion, I'm putting it in quotes, I'm giving my opinion. I think we'll see Jesus Christ in his human body throughout eternity. Uh, I, I think he will be, he won't be nine foot tall. I think he'll be just like we are and, uh, you know, whatever hath he was in his human body. I think we will see the nail prints in his wrists or in his palms, whatever, and I, I think we'll see, if he shows us, the, the thrust in his side, the hole in his side. I think we will see him as he was on earth in his ministry. But we will see him in his glory. It will be that body glorified. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? They go up and they see this radiance in Christ. And that's the glory of God being manifest in him. When he came to earth, in his earth, that was hidden. That, that glory was hidden and, and didn't show itself. He, he just was an average person. That's what, what the psalmist said, just an average person. Not somebody you'd look to behold specially, just an average person. But then that glory came out on the Mount of Transfiguration when he met with, with Moses and Elijah. And so we will see that. That's what this is describing. That's what we'll see. He'll be like us and yet not like us. Or maybe we will have some measure of a glorified body as well that may not have this aura to it, but it'll be different from what we are, even though we'll look like what we are. And you think, I've often thought, I don't want to look like what I look like now in heaven. You think, who do you want to look like? Well, I'm not sure. (laughs) So... But you know what? When we get there, we won't care. It won't matter. It won't matter. We'll feel no. We'll feel no. Uh, What's the words I want to use? We we won't be intimidated. We won't be uh, ashamed. We won't be proud. Um, You know, as you go through life, I've had more problem with pride than I have with intimidation. I've, I've always been a kind of a timid person. I've had a lot of problem with intimidation. I don't know how I ended up pastor of a church. But, you know, um, but that really hasn't created me a lot of problems in life. I just had to deal with it. What's really created me problems is my pride. If you'll be honest, you might have had a little problem with that as well. You say, well, Jerry, what do you have to be proud about? Well, you know, we, we take pride in ourselves regardless of who we are. That is a, that's a battle that everyone fights. And sometimes we take pride in our humility. We take pride in our, you know, we may think the some people are snobs. 
and we're snobs for thinking so. Now, I'm way off the notes here, but you understand what I'm talking about? So the problem I've had in my life is me. Now, I've had a few problems with people outside, but they don't compare with the problems I've had with me. And, and so God's going to conquer that one day. And maybe when he does, and I have a glorified body, it might look more like a glorified body, and I'll be happy with it. And I'll be happy with who I am at that point in time. So we'll see him, or if we happen to go through the tribulation, the people who go through the tribulation, and I think we will see him this way as well, Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to read beginning in verse 11. So here's what the the situation is. At the end of the tribulation, Christ leaves heaven, and he's coming to take control of the earth. So at the end of the tribulation period, we read this, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had the name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in white linen, that's us, white and clean, following him on white horses. That's us. We're going to be in that army. I believe, we're going to come with him clothed in white linen, which means we have the righteousness of Christ fully at that point in time. So we're clothed in white linen, and we're coming with him uh, as he comes to earth. We won't do much fighting. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and, and that with it he should strike the nations. <clears throat> when I was first saved, I, I was trying to imagine a sword coming out of his mouth. But it means that with his word, with his power, just with his presence and his power, with his word, he strikes the nations. And he himself, middle verse 15, he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. It means that he'll rule them completely. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of kings, Lord of lords. He is present today in our world. The world doesn't see him like this. What the world anticipates when they think about God is a benevolent person who could bless them if he wanted to. And they're mad at him when he doesn't. And so that's what they see. They see someone who should should give them what they want and not be judgmental about how they behave. But that's not who he is, and that's not how he's going to reveal himself to the world one day. This is how he's going to reveal himself, in, in power and in glory and in judgment. And now, let me finish. When I think about that, I think about <clears throat> it's a, he is indescribable, and he's a gift to us. He's a gift to us. He's a gift to, he's a gift to us. God gave him to us. He gave him to be our Savior. He gave him to identify with us in his human body. He knows what I feel. When I talk about my petty pride, he knows that. He understands that. He was tempted to that. He didn't give in, but he was tempted to that. He was tempted to the intimidation. He was tempted in all of these areas. Now, I'm going to read you a prayer in closing that comes from the Valley of Vision. Robert introduced that book to us a year or so ago. 
And uh, I'm going to read you a part of a Puritan prayer. And it's a prayer and it's titled Privileges. And I'm going to read the whole thing. But, so listen, I, sometimes when I read, you may zone out. But listen. Oh, Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul that not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him I stand far off, a stranger and outcast. In him I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him I gaze upon my father and my friend, my father God and my friend. Without him I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him all is wrath and consuming fire. In him is all love and the repose of my soul or the calmness of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In him its gates are barred to me by the precious blood. Without him darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him an eternity is glory and my boundless horizon. Without him all within me is terror and dismay. In him every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without him all things eternal call for my condemnation. In him they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. And then he ends with this, Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you gave us Jesus Christ. And if we're honest, we don't even know why. We don't understand why you would, but you did. And we're grateful. And Lord, let our heart be overwhelmed as we go through this Christmas season. And Lord, let us enjoy all the things you've provided for us, the food and gifts and family time and all those things. But let our heart be full with the grace that you've given to us. And remember <clears throat> that your grace that saved us, it's your grace that keeps us, and it's your grace that we'll see you one day. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're going to solve all of our problems. You're going to calm all of our fears. Lord, you're going to fulfill all our desires. And Lord, one day all that's going to be as it should be in your presence. Help us anticipate that day and in anticipation, worship. Help us worship. Lord, help us have a grateful heart that lifts our, lifts our voice up to you and says, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your indescribable gift. We can't fully understand it, but we accept it and rejoice. Thank you. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, God bless you, and Merry Christmas.